So let me open in prayer, and then if my screen's working, it is for now. We will uh, pick up where we left off on key passages. Lord, it's with humbleness, it's with humility that we come and submit ourselves to Scripture. Your Word is precious. It's a lamp to our feet in the dark, dark world. And we need your wisdom. We need wisdom to live every day. I pray that we would understand Job. We would understand this book. Know how to suffer rightly in a dark world. But we know that there is light. We know that Christ is our life. And if we look to him, uh, he will He will give us wisdom. If we ask you, you will give us wisdom. The Spirit will work through us so that we might be wise as we walk. So I pray that you would teach us from your holy word. Amen. We are, uh, I think, at Job 16.2. We've been talking about what's happening in the book of Job with these key passages. And I showed you these cycles. These are cycles where the friends try to explain why Job suffered and why he continues to suffer. So 1 and 2 sets up the whole book. It's where uh, Satan and God have this discussion. God offers Job as an example of a righteous man. Not that he's perfect, not that he can save himself. He knows that. He sacrifices for the fact that he's a sinner. He, he does sacrifices for himself and his family members. It's not that he's never had a sinful thought. It's that as any man can live righteous before God, Job is the best example. Job is not outwardly seeking to defy God. He's not outwardly sinning. You know, he might have the wrong attitude at times or the wrong thoughts. But he deals with it there. He battles sin there. And he's not letting it get out into his life, into his actions. So God says he's righteous. Satan goes and tempts him, destroys everything. Satan comes back. God brings up Job again. And then Satan says, look, of course, everybody will stick to their God if you destroy all that they have. But let me touch his skin. Let me touch his body. Then, then he'll defy you. So what happens? He gets sick. He gets ill. He's miserable. His skin has got boils. He's piercing them with potsherds. He's laying on a pile of trash, suffering, and his wife says, curse God. So that's the whole point of the book. Curse God. If you will just curse God, then just die. And the point is, Job didn't. He was righteous. So then why is he suffering? Well, the friends are going to explain that. It's because Job's a sinner. Of course. We know that if you're suffering, you must be an evil person. You must be a sinner. So they go through three cycles of trying to explain that. And what's the uh, consensus on that by the end? Well, if you turn there, Job tells his friends, you guys are miserable, miserable comforters. Y'all came here to comfort me. And they did, I think, originally. You know, like we often do. We come and we want to comfort those who are suffering. But what we say to them, how we treat them, is so important. If you're suffering and I showed up and I wanted to comfort you, and the first words out of my mouth were, you're a sinner. God's doing this to you because you're a sinner. You would feel pretty bad, especially if you're sitting in the ICU or, you know, on your deathbed. That might be true. It might be true that you're not even a believer, you know, but that's not usually the first words out of a person's mouth, particularly one believer to another. And so these men, they're supposedly followers of God, and they show up and they just keep on getting more forceful so that by the third cycle, they're essentially saying, look, 
Everybody's a maggot before God. God's completely righteous. Y'all are just all worms. Job, you're a worm. You're a maggot. Repent and be done with this. And Job says, look, I'm not a sinner. And so he picks up in 16.2 in, uh, and just tells him. He answered, I've heard many such things. Sorry, comforters argue all. Sorry, comforters. Y'all are pitiful. There's no limit to windy words. What plagues you that you answer? I too could speak like you if I were in your place. Job's like telling them, look, I would do the same thing. I understand this is how the world thinks. I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips could lessen your pain. So I, I could do like you're doing or I could strengthen you. I could give you solace. If I speak, my pain is not lessened. If I hold back what has left me and then he goes on, talking about how God has shattered him, how God has almost hurt him by letting these things happen. Remember the stealthy spirit? We heard a good message on chapters 24 and 25 at Shepherd's Conference. Remember, though, there's this stealthy spirit here who we spoke of last week. He starts in 4.12 through 21. He starts there, and Bildad says, I heard a spirit. He was very stealthy. He told me this message. Man is... Nothing before God. And that flows all throughout these first three friends. And so we'll just look at the last example there. And 20, I think it's best in the ESV here, but 22 through 8. We saw the last one that that mentioned the Spirit, or this message of the Spirit in chapter 25. That's the maggot and the worm line. I don't think we looked at this one. Who's got an ESV? Can you read that? Job 22 through 8. So stop there. My translation says, The spirit of my understanding makes me answer. But pick up again where you were at there, Ernest. So go back. Sorry, go back and read uh, 3. So a spirit answers. Out of my understanding is the idea there. A spirit, once again, is, is speaking. All right, continue. What is the spirit going to say? So man is nothing. He's just going to disappear. He, he's like dung. He just is there one day. He's refuse. He's trash. He's gone. And so the spirit, I, I argued last week that it's an evil spirit, is trying to convince these men that man is nothing and the message that Sometimes even believers can hear is that God is too mighty, we could never reach him, and he thinks of us as nothing. And this works well with legalism, right? Because if you think God is so holy you could never reach him, that almost makes you try harder if you're trying to work your way to him. Nothing is giving the legalists more fuel than telling them they can't do something. We just try harder to do it. Now, if we trust in Christ, we give up on legalism and... We put our trust in him. And Job's going to come to that. All right, so 16.2, he tells his friends, they're of no help. I think they're of no help because they've taken good theology. They've twisted it. They've twisted it. They've let Satan twist it. And so they start off talking about God and how holy he is. But by the end, there's no hope. There's no hope for Job. Even if Job repents, I wonder what they would tell him to do. All right, before we go to chapter 28, let's look at 14. Chapter 14 
and verse 14. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. So there is hope. And we're already seeing it here. There is a hope. What is he, what is he saying here? If a man dies, will he live again? Is there life after death? That's how we would say it. All the days of my struggle I will wait. So no matter how hard it is, I'm going to wait for something. That wait for something is until my change comes. What change? The change of body. The change from this miserable body, this miserable state that he's in, until he lives again. So already, just a little hint. Life is hard. Suffering is hard. We don't always know why we suffer, Job says. But there's a change coming. There is a life after death. Now let's come to the midpoint of the book, chapter 28. And I told you last week that, that 28 is a poem. And it's really the point of the book. People think Job is about various different things. But this is the focus here in chapter 28. Some even argue this is God speaking. I think it's Job speaking, but he's pointing us to God. He's pointing us to God's wisdom and how we cannot understand God's wisdom. Job is suffering. He hasn't sinned to cause us suffering. His friends have told him that. The world is telling him, look, you're just a sinner. You've done something wrong. That's why you're suffering. And Job says, no, that's not. We know that that's not the reason because God's already said he's righteous even after he's been tested. Look at Job 28. I think this is Job still talking here. He starts to realize some things. Or maybe later he, he's taught this by God and he puts it here in the book. Surely there's a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from the dust. Copper is smelted from the rock. Man puts an end to darkness and to the farthest limits he searches out. The rock in gloom and deep shadow. He sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing to and fro far from men. The earth, from it comes food, and underneath it is turned up as fire. Its rocks are the source of sapphires. Its dust contains gold. The path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. What's he talking about here? How deep man can go in the earth to find great things. It makes you, just, just stopping for a second with the theology of the chapter, it makes you see how advanced mankind already was in the days of Job. They could dig down this deep and drop these shafts into the earth where they could find sapphires. They could find jewels. And Job is saying, look how awesome man is that he could do this. Now he's trying to make a point. He's going to argue from the lesser to the greater. But he says, look, falcons... As wonderful as birds of prey are, they've never seen under the earth like that. The proud beasts have not trodden there, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. So as wonderful as these creatures are, they've never gone into the earth to find these things, to find gold. He puts his hand on the flint, man does. He overturns the mountains at the base. He hews out channels through the rocks, and his eyes, his eye sees anything precious. He dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden, he brings out to the light. So man can go deep into the earth. He can do great things as far as with his hands to dig out something buried. But, verse 12, but where can wisdom be found? Where's the place of understanding? As, as much as we can do in our modern world, where can you find wisdom in this world? Where can you find wisdom in the universe? 
Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Hmm. So if you want wisdom, which we all should, you can't find it in the strength of men's hands. You can't find it in the strength of people doing great things in the world. You can't even find it in the land of the living, meaning amongst people on the earth. The deep says, it's not in me. So the things under the, under the earth, under the crust of the earth, it's not there. The sea says, it's not in me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it. So you can't, you can't actually buy wisdom, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, the, the most precious gold of the ancient Middle East. You can't value wisdom in onyx or sapphire. Gold, glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned. The acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls, the topaz of Ethiopia. You can't buy it. You can't buy it with pure gold. It is more valuable than all things. But where do we find it, he says. Verse 20, where then does wisdom come from? And where's the place of understanding? How do I understand my suffering, Job says. I can't understand it. These miserable friends can't explain it to me. You can't even find it amongst people. Where does it come from? Verse 21, thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. So you can't find it under the earth, in the ocean, on the earth, in the sky. Abaddon and death say with our ears we have heard a report of it. So even the dead, even the dead in punishment cannot know true wisdom. They can't find it. They've heard it. It's out there somewhere. Just a report. There must be wisdom somewhere. But here it is, verse 23. God understands its way. And he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So that's the point of the book. Job, I think he wrote this later and put it back in the middle here. But this is similar to what God's going to say when he shows up talking to Job. You want to know why I did this to you, Job? Well, I'm not going to tell you, but I'm going to show you my wisdom. Which means we need to trust in God. No matter what's happening in our life, he's wise. It's his wisdom. And we ought to search out wisdom from God. Not from our miserable friends who don't always know what to say to us. And not from the world. Not in ourselves either. Wisdom comes from God. If the most technologically advanced people in the world can't give us wisdom, where are we going to find it? We've got to find it with God. And so the point of the book is that God's wisdom is above ours and we can't understand why things are happening. Sometimes it is because of our sin. Sometimes you sin and God disciplines you. And consequences result. That happens. And sometimes you suffer and it's not because of your sin. So you should at least start with asking yourself that. But we know in Job's case it wasn't his sin. That's how God last spoke of him in the book. It said all these things happened to Job and he did not sin with his mouth. He did not commit unrighteousness against God. 
So why is he suffering? No one knows, but God knows. Because God is wise. Why am I suffering? I don't always know. Why are you suffering? We don't know. Sometimes it's because of our own actions, and we know that because we committed those actions, and sometimes it's, it's not anything to do with us. It's God's wisdom. It's God's plan. It's God's sovereignty. He created wisdom. He created the earth. He created all circumstances that we live in today. Any questions on that before we continue on? Uh, chapter 19. Let's go there. There is hope. Even though we suffer, again, Job mentioned already that he would, he would have a change. He would get to live after death. How can he say that? Well, he tells us in uh, 1925, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed. So when is your skin destroyed? After death? After your body rots away? Even after death, even after rotting away, in 1926, he says, Yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. He's talking about that his eyes will see God and not someone else. My heart faints within me. It's so, it's so magnificent to think of that he's, he feels like fainting within himself. He will see God in his flesh. Well, if his skin's rotted away, how is he going to see God in the flesh, his Redeemer? Well, the resurrection. That's the only possible way. That's the only logical conclusion. If his body is wasted away, but he's in the flesh looking at God, worshiping God, he must have been resurrected. Job, I think the first book of the Bible, is already speaking of a Redeemer and already speaking of a resurrection. Also, here's some ironic words in verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. They are written now, aren't they? That with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Well, he did write them down, and here they are for us. And he's already speaking of a redeemer, of a future hope, where suffering won't be the case. Because what does Job want? He wants an audience before God. He wants to have a courtroom session with God so he can plead his case. And say, God, what did I do? Why am I suffering so much? And he says, one day I'll get to see God, but it'll be at the resurrection for sure. Okay, 26.7. Just a quick uh, verse on creation here. Chapter 26, verse 7. Job is talking about God. He stretches out the north over the empty space, and he hangs the earth on nothing. What does that mean, he hangs the earth on nothing? There's nothing there. He doesn't, he doesn't prop the earth up. Some people think that the ancient Hebrews were stupid and that the Bible isn't true. And so they think, well, the Hebrew people believe the earth was flat and it was propped up on the backs of these turtles. And they have this ancient, does that look like a turtle? That's, that's pretty pitiful, huh? We need some more legs, don't we? They have four legs. How about that? And that, you know, there's water flowing off the sides. It's kind of an ancient uh, flat earth theory here. And if you read the Bible, the scholars say, that's what they would have believed. You know, because God talks about the earth has foundations. And it's founded on the mountains. And, you know, that's the backs of these turtles. And all these pagans believe the same thing. 
and so do the Hebrews. Well, here it says God hung the earth on nothing. God put it in space, and it stands by itself. And so the Bible is not a science textbook, but when it does talk about scientific things like this, it's true. We, we, don't, we don't say, oh, those idiot uh, ancient Hebrews, they didn't know what they believed. They did, and it's, it's so assumed that they could talk about the earth like this, and people understood. Other places in Job, they'll talk about constellations. Constellations that we can still look up and see in the night sky. They weren't idiots. That's really anti-Semitism, to think that they're dumber than we are and didn't know anything. Uh, they did. They did know things. God had taught them many things in His Word, but they also knew things. It's sort of like the Christopher Columbus myth, right? No one knew the earth was round until Christopher Columbus. Who's heard that? Just me. I was the only one, me and Jessica. We we're the only ones who were taught that in school. Everybody else knew. Everybody else knew that, that they believed since at least 400 B.C. in Greece that the earth was round. They could actually measure the size of the earth just by watching the sun go down over the horizon and doing certain measurements. It wasn't that the earth was flat. That's not what people believed in ancient times. All right. Be careful there. I'll go off on a tangent. So we already looked at 28. So God shows up in 38. So Job speaks in 28. Then this character Elihu shows up, which we'll talk about him in a moment. And then God shows up in 28. And he's going to question Job. And the whole point, that God is sovereign and in control. Again, he is wise. He is all wise. He is all sovereign. He is in control. Job doesn't get an answer to his question. Job wants to know, why am I suffering God? Tell me right now, what did I do to cause this? And then God says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the world when and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now he's not saying, who's this maggot worm? I don't care about humanity. But he's saying, who is this guy? Come on, Job. What are you doing? You don't know anything. You don't have knowledge. Gird up your loins like a man. I like that. And I will answer you, and you instruct me. Go ahead, Job. You want answers? Well, why don't you just tell me, God says, the answer to these questions. You think you have more wisdom than me? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who sets its measurements? And he goes through, all these chapters are on the creation. How wonderful it is. Chapter 39, do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Nobody can see those mountain goats give birth. I actually walked up on a mountain goat when I was hiking one time and had just given birth, but I didn't see it give birth. It was interesting. Can you see all these wonderful things that God has made? Chapter 40, then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answers and says, Behold, I'm insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer. Even twice I will add nothing more. So he's beginning to realize here that God is wise and he just has to trust in God. That he's not going to get all the answers he wants. If we had all the answers, then we would be God. If we had all the wisdom and knew why everything happened the way it did, we would be God. And God says, He's the only one who's God. Job's not going to be God, and we're not going to be God. But that's not enough. Even continuing on, God continues to question him. 
Gird up your loins like a man in 47. Gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you and you instruct me. And he goes on to talk about the ways of God, the power shown in the creatures, these mighty creatures, Leviathan, Behemoth. And then the book ends, chapter 42. And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. By now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Then God says to end it here. Uh, it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. That's interesting. Job spoke rightly. The friends didn't. What'd they do? Again, they took a little bit of true theology and then they twisted it further. That's how Satan works. Satan doesn't tell you something that's not going to be easily believed. He tells you something that sounds half true. It starts out sounding great, but he twists it. And that's what the friends did. They did not speak rightly like Job did. Now, therefore, take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering. They better sacrifice for their sin. And Job will serve as kind of the priest who does the sacrifice. He will pray for you. Job's going to pray for you. For I will accept him that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. You haven't done what's right. You haven't done what, what Job has done, who spoke rightly. Which is going to bring us back to what does it mean that he repented and retracted. But that's an interpretive issue we'll look at. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told him, and the Lord accepted Job. doesn't even say the Lord accepted them. The Lord accepted Job, and I guess through Job his sacrifice. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. The Lord increased all that Job had twofold. So he lost everything. Now he gets uh, basically everything equal to what he had times two. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house. They consoled him. They comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. Remember, Satan had to get permission from God. Satan did it. He used mankind in some cases to do it and natural disasters to do it. But ultimately, all things are from the Lord because God is in control of all things. And even here we see that just because Job got everything back twofold doesn't mean that makes up for the loss of his family. He lost ten kids. They're still comforting him. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, and it goes on to talk about how wealthy he was. He had seven sons and three daughters, so he had ten more children. He named the first Jemima, the second Kiziah, and the third Karen Hapuk, which in Hebrew mean certain things that speak of God's blessing. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. This is unheard of. You give the firstborn a double inheritance? 
The other sons, you give an inheritance, and the daughters don't get an inheritance. Job's so wealthy, even his daughters got an inheritance. After this, Job lived 140 years. That's a blessing from God. He saw his sons. He saw his grandsons. Four generations from him, he saw them grow up of his descendants. And Job died an old man and full of days. So, was he a sinner? No, the book proves he, he was not a sinner in the sense that his friends were saying. Yes, he sinned. We're not talking about the Messiah here. Get the point of the book. The point of the book is our suffering is not always due to sin. And that's why the book of Job is there. If this book is about Job's sin, then it could have been done in two chapters. He went through the testing. He sinned. End of book. Man's a sinner, therefore he deserves suffering. But the whole book is making the argument that God is wise, and even when we don't understand why we're suffering, even when it's not because of our sin, God knows God's doing it for something good. And the New Testament teaches that as well. Key people. Job, he's a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. That's what it says in the book. Blameless and upright. If you think perfect, if you think Christ Messiah, then you'll get this wrong and you'll say, how can Job be perfect? That doesn't make sense. Total depravity. That's not the point. Just like in the New Testament, who's called, who's called righteous before the Lord? Who's called righteous in the New Testament, in the gospel accounts? Name some people called righteous. Leading up to the birth of Jesus. Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, righteous before the Lord. Did he sin? Yeah, he, he got struck deaf because of his sin. That's not what righteous means in that sense. If, if righteous is perfection, then none of us are righteous. But the Bible says we are in Christ. Who else was righteous in the New Testament? Who? Noah, Noah in the Old Testament. And Noah, but he sinned, didn't he? So it's not meaning he's perfect. Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, they were righteous, meaning they did the sacrifices, they went to the temple, they loved the Lord with their heart. And they were trying to live out a godly life. And I think Job, and God says, he is a blameless and upright man. There's no one on earth who fears God like Job. At that time, there was no one else that lived as righteously as Job. Satan tried to get Job to curse God. Didn't happen. Eliphaz, his, his line is, if you sin, you're a sinner. And it is true, but it's inappropriate in this context. The context is not about Job's sin. But it's not true in this specific situation. Eliphaz gave bad and unkind counsel based on the assumptions of his experience and of the spirit, I would add, the evil spirit. Bildad said, you must be sinning. He gave insulting and bad counsel based on the assumptions of his traditions. So he's the guy who says, look, everyone knows this. This is tradition. Everyone understands this only happens to sinners. Zophar, he says the same thing. You're sinning. But each of these friends gets worse and worse and meaner and more angry with their arguments. If you read this after this class, just look for how, how angry these guys get at Job. Zophar gave bad counsel based on the assumptions of his religious convictions. I know this is true. I know this is true. God, God has made it clear to all of us that sinners suffer. Look at you, you sinner. He also was very defensive and more direct. Zophar is the the ugliest of all the friends when it comes to what he says. And the third cycle, he doesn't even speak. He's done. Now Elihu, a young friend of Job who gave counsel that was wiser, 
than those older than him. We'll look at Elihu in the moment. Some people think Elihu is God or spokesman for God. Best commentary, uh, Tyndale Old Testament commentary by Francis Anderson. Uh, when I took a class on Job, this is the only commentary we used. Uh, there's really not that many great commentaries on Job out there. There's one being written by the guy I took my class with, uh, Dwayne Garrett, but it's not ready yet after five years uh, or more. He's still working on it. Okay, interpretive problems. This is kind of fun, but it doesn't matter in the end. What's the sickness of Job? Topical eczema. I think it's a little worse than eczema. Dermatitis. I didn't put a, uh, a reference on here, but let me find it here. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. So Satan says skin for skin. You know, if, if a man has his health, then basically he'll never turn against you. God, you blessed him with good health. And so God says, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. You can't kill him, but you are allowed to torment him. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is uh, 2.7. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. So it's kind of a modern thing that we're focused on, trying to find out what are these sicknesses in the Bible. And is that smallpox? Elephantiasis, where you get a parasite and it blocks up the lymphatic system and things swell up. Pemphigus folaceus, which is an autoimmune disease that causes boils, but they're not all that big compared to what's described here. So what am I going to say? As most diseases in the Bible, no exact diagnosis possible. This is long, long ago, after, not too long after the flood, actually, that Job lives. And uh, we don't know. Probably something with a supernatural element, meaning it came directly from Satan. I think in the spiritual realm, demons can cause things that we don't always see in other cases. It is very possible. And uh, demonic possession in the New Testament doesn't look like any of the diseases that we're familiar with today. So who knows what Satan can do when given this kind of ability. Okay, Elihu. Let's go look at Elihu. Elihu starts in, is it 32? Yeah, 32. So the three men are done. Job speaks for a while. Now here's Elihu. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. So they thought Job was righteous in his own eyes. And they were so, Job, you're just, you're you self-righteous. We're tired of it. We're done. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned. Against Job, his anger burned because he justified himself before God. Come on, Job. That's ridiculous. Who can say they're righteous? Who can say they haven't? caused the sin that brought about all this come on only people who really sinned have had this much bad stuff happen and his anger burned against his three friends because they found no answer and yet had condemned job so he's mad at job and he's mad at the friends because they're pitiful they can't even make a good argument it's ridiculous come on guys 
Obviously, Job has sinned, and you guys can't even come up with a good argument to prove it. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. So he's a young man. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. So Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years, and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak, and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me. I, too, will tell what I think. Now it's my turn, he says. You guys, I've given you all a chance. I've been respectful to you, my elders. Now it's my turn to give the correct answer. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings. While you pondered what to say, I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his word. Do not say we have found wisdom. God will rout him, not man. For he has not arranged his words against me, nor will I reply to him with your arguments. I'm not going to use your arguments. I got better ones, he's saying. They are dismayed. They no longer answer. Words have failed them. Talking about the friends. Shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stop and no longer answer? I too will answer my share. I also will tell my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine. Like new wineskins is about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. That's a little bit of pride there, isn't it? I don't even know how to flatter. I'm not going to flatter Job. I'm not going to flatter you friends. Just give me an opportunity and I'll clarify things. However now, Job... Please hear my speech and listen to all my words. Behold now, I open my mouth, my tongue, and my mouth speaks. My words are from the uprightness of my heart. My lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourselves before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. So he goes on to make his argument. And it's very similar to the friends, but not quite. He's not quite as hard on Job as the friends are. He seems to speak with some wisdom that we might recognize. Again, talking about who God is, who man is. Uh, Let me see if there's something I want to point out here. Let's just read the end of Elihu's speech here. Starting in uh, chapter 37, verse 14. Listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? So think about who this sounds like now that we've looked through the whole book. Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the land is still because of the south wind. Can you with God spread out the skies strong as a molten mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Or should a man say that he should be swallowed up? Now men do not see the light which is bright in the skies, but the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor, and around God is awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is exalted in power. He will not do violence to justice 
and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. Who does that sort of sound like when he was asking those questions? Sounds like God later in the book. Can you do all these things? And so people say this is God and uh, personified. Or it's a spokesperson for God. No, that's not the case. Certainly, how do we know it's not God? It even gives his family heritage, doesn't it? He's a young man, and he's of this family from this place. So he's a real person. And I don't think he's a spokesman for God. Notice how he finishes out there, saying basically the same things as the friends. Um, God would never do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. If you were just, if you were righteous, Job, God would never have punished you. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. If you were wise, Job, if you lived your life according to righteousness, God would never have punished you. So it's the same conclusion as the friends. It's just spoken a little better. It's not as harsh. And uh, really, I think Elihu is a further human counselor. B, I don't think it's a, a layer of the foundation for Yahweh's words. Whatever that means, that's what some people say. Why is Elihu in the, in the book? I would agree with Dr. Garrett who said that he's the guy that thinks he has all the answers. He's us as we read Job. We read Job and we're like, these friends are ridiculous. They start off with decent theology and then they twist it. But Elihu, we're like Elihu. We got the answer. We, we've, we're kind of stepping back, observing it going on. And we're watching. It's like the movie where nobody in the movie knows what's going to happen, but you know what's going to happen because you've seen it all from all directions. That's Elihu. He's just been sitting back. He's been, he's been observing. Now he has all the answers. And so I think God made sure there was a man like Elihu there, and Job wrote that. So it would close our mouths as well as we read. Because up to this point, we probably think we have it figured out, or at least some of it. And here's this example of Elihu, who, like us, he thinks he has it figured out. Listen to me. I don't flatter people. I'm wise. I may be young, but you old men don't know anything I know. I know. God would never do something like this. Let me explain it to you. I know my theology. Let me explain it to you. And true, Elihu is not mentioned in the end of the book. He's not said to have to sacrifice. So, so maybe he is the, the stronger believer, we might say, but who still gets some things wrong, who's still prideful, he's still arrogant. Uh, so I think it's just another human counselor, but the reason he's in, in the, the reality of the story is to show you that we can't sit back and think we have all the answers either. In the end, we don't know why God did what he did. We just know that he's sovereign. We know that God's wise. And we know that God's good. Okay, the big question. What did Job do wrong? Did he do anything wrong? Did he do anything wrong? Let's go to 42.6. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Let's go back to 41-5 through five as well. Let's cross-reference that. And the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Job answered the Lord, said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing. 
So some say that what he did wrong was he had a previous hidden sin that's not mentioned in the book. What's the problem with that? Kind of defeats the whole purpose of God saying that he's righteous, right? And the purpose of the book. And his friends get proven right. That's her whole argument, right? There's some hidden sin you're not mentioning. By the way, when you quote from Job, make sure you understand what the friends are saying before you quote from the friends. Many, many people and many pastors and many books will pull a quote out of Job, but it's actually the friends using using something wrongly. So just be careful that you don't pull out Bildad's words and say, see, there's my proof text for my theology on this thing. Well, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, and maybe maybe it's right but being twisted. So just probably better to look somewhere else unless you understand what the friends are saying in that passage. It's not a previous sin. We, we've already established by the end of chapter 2 that Job is a righteous man, and God has not done this for that purpose. Was he sinning in the suffering? Well, was it pride? And then he had a changed attitude. So he sinned, and that's kind of maybe what he's getting at in chapter 40 there in verses 1 through 5 when he says, Look, I put my hand on my mouth. I will not answer. I will add nothing more. And then God changed his attitude by these, by these questions. Was he being prideful? Maybe he was kind of innocent, but he was, he was being prideful. And that's why he has to say at the end that he repented. And I think we can rule out A completely. I, B, B through D, good and godly people disagree uh, and pick various ones. C, he didn't sin, but he had a changed attitude. So is there a sense that we cannot sin but have a changed attitude? Yeah, I mean, that's what we, hopefully you're doing that regularly. Hopefully that's every Sunday, right? You're coming here. You may not be sinning in the moment that you worship, but your attitude is changing because you're, you're knowing more about God. You're knowing more about the Bible. You're knowing more about who you are before God. In other words, is it a sin that when you come here on Sunday, you did not know what you leave here knowing? Is that a sin? Or is that just a lack of knowledge? And so is it, is it really an issue here of Job just not knowing and wanting an answer? Because didn't David in the Psalms request an answer from God? Didn't David call out strongly in ways that would make us feel uncomfortable? Would you pray like David did in some of those Psalms? Oh, Lord, give me an answer. I mean, come on, God. And many other psalmists, not just David. So is that always wrong? Is it wrong to ask God for an answer? I would say no, it's not wrong to ask God for an answer. It can be. It depends on our attitude. It depends on why. But when we're suffering and we want to know why, I would say that's not always wrong. We may not get an answer, but it's not always wrong. Others say, no, he did not sin, but God just consoled him in the end. I'm going to say one of these, and I actually prefer C once you consider the translation options for 42.6. So therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. The word for repent here is not the normal word in Hebrew for repent. The normal word for Hebrew is shuv. means to turn around. That's what, where we see it in the New Testament. It's the same idea. You're going one way and you completely turn around and go the other way. That's what it means to repent. So they use the word in Hebrew for turning around. You're walking one way, you turn around and go the other way. This word here is found a few other places for repent and in 42.6. And it actually means comfort. Comfort. So 
That doesn't work too well if I say, therefore, I retract and I'm comforted in dust and ashes. But I think the translation I've seen that would work here, and I thought I had it printed out, but I probably did for last week and then tossed it after last week's class. Something along the lines of, I, I retract and I relent. I'm going to stop asking questions and be comforted in my dust and ashes. I'm going to accept what you give me, is the idea. I'm just going to have comfort in whatever you give me, even if that's dust and ashes. What has he been sitting on? An ash heap, a dust heap, picking at his scabs of his boils. And so I probably would line up more with C. It's not that B is bad or even D is terrible, but I think the point is not Job's sin in the book. That's the whole case of the friends. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. So if Job sins in the end of the book, or God says he sinned, then it sort of defeats the point if the point is about suffering when you didn't sin. There's a space in the Christian life, in the believer's life, where we can question God and not always be sinful. We just genuinely want to know why. And we don't have an answer. And this is hard for us, I think, in the New Testament sense, to think, okay, how, how can that be the case? How can we strongly desire and demand the answer from God and not, not be sin? But we see that in some psalms. I can't think of any offhand. I didn't write any down. Who, who can think of a psalm where the psalmist is calling out to God very strongly and demanding an answer? If you find one, let me know. I know there's some. I didn't write them down. So I think there's a category there. We have to be careful. And can't, you cannot take Job and apply that to all situations in your life. You cannot say, oh, hey, my suffering can't be sin because of Job. That's not right. It could be sin. In Job's case, we have God saying he was righteous. He says it in the end. He says it in the beginning. Not perfect, but righteous. The point of Job, I believe, is suffering rightly in the sovereignty of God and not about the sin issue. The friends say it's a sin issue. The book is saying it's not a sin issue. It's about trusting God. It's about being wise. Okay, for you creationists, which should be most of us, I hope, what is the Leviathan? A lot of commentaries today will say it's a crocodile. It's a crocodile. I don't know why I have 3.8. It's not in 3.8, but is it in 41.1? We'll be quick about Leviathan and uh, Bohemoth here. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Tell me if this sounds like a crocodile. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Verse 5, will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons? Verse 7, or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. You will be laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? So Leviathan is, is a mighty creature. To stand before Leviathan would be some great thing. And even greater is somebody who can stand before God. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength, his ordinary frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? So he's very armored. Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there's terror. His strong scales are his pride shut up as with a tight seal. So you can't pierce this creature's armor, his skin, so thick. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to the other. Verse 18, he sneezes 
His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. There's a glow, there's a fire. Out of his mouth goes burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth, as from a boiling pot, kindles of coals, and on and on. You can't kill this thing, it's the most magnificent, scary creature on the earth. Crocodile? I haven't seen any spitting out fire. Bad heartburn of a crocodile. A beastly figure for moral evil. So some say, look, this just represents moral evil. Is it Satan? Some make a strong case that it's Satan. Isaiah 27.1, which we don't have time to look at, makes it, that case kind of sound like Satan. There's a dragon in Revelation 12. I think it's a sea monster. We could say a dinosaur-like animal. Look at Psalm 74 and 104. Those are talking about a giant animal. So that's where I'm going. Behemoth is the same. He's not a hippopotamus. Why does everybody say Leviathan's crocodile in the commentaries? And, and the behemoth is a hippopotamus. His tail's like a cedar of Lebanon. Those has been the Israel. The cedar of Lebanon. It's huge. Some say, look, he's a composite beast figure for the moral evil in the world. Just like Leviathan or dinosaur-like animal. Let's just look at the description and then we're done. 40, 15. Just this one verse. Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you, he eats grass like an ox. Look, look at 18. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He's the first of the ways of God. He's this mighty thing that God created. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food. All the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plant he lies down in the covert of the reeds in the marsh. The lotus plant covers him. 23. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. He's so massive that the river could go into his mouth. It wouldn't cause a problem. That's not a hippo. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch with barbs? Can anyone pierce his nose? Dinosaur-like creature. Okay, that's Job. It's a good book. Read it. That's just a survey. We're just going quickly through these books of the Bible. And so next week, we're going to jump into a large book called the Psalms. You can read through that, speed read it. If you need to, you'll be better prepared for class. Lord, we pray to you, thanking you once again for your word. Help us to suffer rightly under your sovereignty, under your wisdom. Help us to not take true theology and twist it to hurt others, but be there to comfort them and help them determine whether they're suffering for sin or suffering just because that's your ways, that's your wisdom. We don't always know. Help us to love the book of Job and read it more often in Christ's name. Amen.